Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning, Vox. Daylight savings time. How many of you enjoyed the, uh, the extra hour of sleep? Okay. This works two ways. Right when it switches back, you're usually late places. Uh, this time, you're early. So I was early this morning because I forgot to change my car clock. So I, I usually wake up a little earlier on Sundays, and then I, I got into my car. Uh, I went to Starbucks, and then I started realizing, wow, the time went really fast. I need to be here. So then I pulled in. There's, I think, three cars here. I walked in. Nothing was set up. So I just kept going, and I was on my way to the, the team huddle, which happens at 9.15. And Cece said, what are you doing? It's 7.15. So anyways, or it's 8.15. So I got tricked. But um. Welcome to Vox. You made it one way or the other, and we all have an extra hour of sleep, so it's nice. Uh, Two announcements for you before we dive into uh, what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Both of these, you can sign up at uh, voxoc.com. The first is our Vox dinners. They're they're still happening. More of them are ahead, and so if you want to participate in those, you can sign up online. How many of you have ever gone to one of those? Just by show of hands. That's probably a little over 50%. Excellent. Okay, if, if you're trying to decide based on the quality of the cuisine, uh, I would recommend David, okay? Uh, the Robles household. He is a chef, and he's in culinary school, and so if that's what you're looking for. And if you're just looking for community and you don't care about the food, they're all good. So there you go. Uh, second thing is uh, Carrie's next workshop, which is called uh, Grief as a Powerful Tool for Healing is on Tuesday, November 27th. And you can also sign up for that on the website. And Carrie, as we know, is a very gifted communicator, but she's also very gifted in a smaller group context where there's dialogue happening and she can share some of her wisdom with us. And so, again, I would encourage you to be at that if you can. And again, both of those are will be on the website this week. I don't know. I think the dinner's already up and the workshop will be soon. Sound good? All right. And there was no response. (laughs) Silence means yes. All right. Let me just pray for us and then we'll begin. Well, Jesus, thank you for Vox and thank you for just the incredible family that this church is and has become. Lord, thank you for bringing every person here And God, I just pray that in this moment, Lord, we would open our eyes and our hearts, that we would see you, that we would hear from you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 20, and the book of Acts has 28 chapters. So we're really kind of coming around the corner into the final stretch. And a couple months ago, Ronnie had the idea to do a series in Acts. And his thought was, we're a young church. We've been here. We're coming up on our third year anniversary. And he thought, what better place to go than the earliest glimpse of Christianity? We're still forming our identity in many ways. We're still figuring out who we are as a church. And so by looking back at Acts, uh, we don't have to completely reinvent the wheel. The book of Acts sort of 
shows us what it means to be the church. What are the things that are most important? As followers of Jesus, what are we supposed to be about? And so, again, we're in Acts chapter 20, and I hope you guys have been reading along with us. If you haven't, uh, it's not too late. You still can jump in there, but if you have, something you've probably noticed is how many monologues there are in Acts. Has anyone noticed that? There's these long speeches or sermons, and actually 30% of the book is made up of these things, and so... In Acts chapter 20, here's what's unique about this speech we're about to read, is it's the only one that is given just to Christians. All the others are to mixed groups. A lot of them are sort of sharing the gospel evangelistic. This one is specifically from Paul to Christians. So let's go ahead and read it. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse uh, 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Whew, there's the speech. Okay, so this is a powerful moment for a couple reasons. Number one, Paul is on his last missionary journey. There's three of them. We all know uh, Paul traveled the world and he shared the gospel. So this is nearing the end of his third journey and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And did you catch what he senses is gonna happen? He said, trouble and hardship await. And we, this ends up being true because Paul does get to Jerusalem. He's arrested, he's tried, he's eventually shipped off across the world to Rome where he is executed. So Paul sees the storm coming already, then he's telling them about it. And so what he does is he stops in this place called Miletus and he, he brings the elders from the church in Ephesus and they all gather together. This was a church that Paul spent three years of his life with. And so he gathers with them on the shore as he's getting ready to get on the ship and leave. And he says, this is the last time you will probably ever see me again. 
And I, I heard someone say recently that last words are lasting words. And so Paul takes this final moment with them and he says, I've been with you for three years as the church, as the people I love. Here's what is most important for you to know because I may never have this opportunity to say these things again. And that's what we get in the midst of this whole speech. So what, what is the heartbeat of the church? What are we supposed to be about? Three things we're gonna highlight. Truth, number two is tenderness and togetherness. Okay, how's that for a simple sermon outline? There it is right there. So this is for us too, Vox. Truth, tenderness, and togetherness. We'll start with truth. And we're gonna spend the most time here because there's a lot for us to think about and wrestle through. And so let's do that. Okay, the first thing, truth. As Christianity was spreading, Maybe you've never thought of it this way, but it was really the spread of a truth claim. It was the spread of a message, which is that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who appeared in Galilee. He started performing miraculous signs. He started claiming to be the son of God. Then he was killed on a Roman cross, and then he rose again. And because of that, just like he defeated death, those who believe in him can defeat death as well. That was the message. And that's through all of Acts what is spreading from city to city, region to region. And if the church is going to be the church, that message always has to be central. But it's harder than it looks because Paul says there are wolves, he uses the analogy, that are gonna come in and will try to distort the truth. They will try to deceive people. Now why would anyone wanna pull others away from a message of hope? Right, the message of Jesus is about life. It's a positive message, so why would any wolves wanna come in and distort something like that? And the answer is because if Jesus is God, that means that all other gods are not. And that means that all other religions are not true. And that offends people. That's not an easy message, right? And we get that in our society, like how that can be offensive. And we're gonna talk about that in a second. But I I wanna make really clear uh, right here at the beginning in verse 21 of what we had read, Paul says this, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So at the heart of Paul's message, and he says what every church should be about is the idea that Jesus alone can save you. And big surprise, people don't always like that message, right? Because it involves repentance, it involves admitting there's something wrong with us, and that's just offensive. So what I wanna do quickly is I wanna zoom us out to other places in the New Testament where this idea that salvation is in Jesus alone shows up, just so that we can see it and start to think about it. All right, so here's a couple. Next slide. John 14, six, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Next one. John 17, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Next, 
Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then the last one here, which is probably the most clear of all, from Acts, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now I know this probably raises some questions for some of us. Um, but first, I want to take us to Paul's culture and explain how they would have heard this message, and then we'll return to ourselves. So, in Greco-Roman religion, uh, it was sort of comparable to a church potluck. Okay, I grew up Presbyterian, so what we would do is we would line up all the folding tables, okay, all the sweet old ladies would put down the casseroles, and there's only one rule at a church potluck, one rule, and it is you can never have too much food. Right, so if someone brings a, a new dish in, you just scoot all the casseroles together and you put the new food down and the more the merrier. And this is how Greco-Roman religion was. There was no concept of conversion, of leaving your previous faith to come to a new one. It was all integration. It was like a potluck. The more the merrier, some new deity comes on the scene, some new faith or belief or God, you just put it all together. And that's how they thought about it. And so if you were moving to a new town in the ancient world, you got there, you were going to find new gods, maybe some that you had never heard of before. And you wouldn't leave your old gods to start worshiping the new ones. You would just put them together. Now, how did Christianity impact a culture like that? Here, Here come Christians who say, actually, all those gods aren't really gods. There's one true God, and his name is Jesus. Whoa. You know how they viewed Christians as a threat to society? Because for Greeks and Romans, to worship the different gods meant protecting your livelihood, your welfare, your country, your security. They thought all these gods were controlling all things. And so by not worshiping them, you were risking offending the gods and you were therefore putting everything at risk. So here's these Christians being all exclusive saying, there is one Lord and Savior, Jesus. And they're like, really? You're gonna send all of this down the drain. And that's how Christians were viewed much of the time. And now going to our culture, we understand this, how Christianity can also be a threat to us because the mantra of our time, the predominant view is pluralism, which says that all religions are equally valid. And so this is difficult for us. In fact, we got a question that came in um, and let me just read it. It was on this exact topic. It says, if God is loving and compassionate, why would, he content, why would he condemn those who reject him or who don't hear the gospel? Uh, another way you could phrase that question in a way that's often posed is this. Can't all religions lead to the same God just through different means, right? We all have our approach, but isn't the destination in the end just the same? And we're gonna talk about that today. So two words with one stone. We're gonna have a Q&A right in the middle of a message, all right? So here we go. A really helpful voice on this question is uh, a writer named Tim Keller, and he wrote a book called The Reason for God. And just so you know, today I'm gonna reference a couple resources, and I sent them all to Andy, and so if, if these are questions that you are wrestling with and thinking through, 
I would encourage you to go on the Vox OC website this week and we'll have these posted for you and you can sort of look uh, a little bit deeper into them. And they're not easy questions, okay? They're not easy. But Tim Keller, in his book, he talks about a time he was invited to be on this panel and he was the Christian representative. There was a Jewish rabbi and there was a Muslim imam, okay, all sitting around the table. And this is what he says about their conversation. It was courteous, intelligent, and respectful in tone. Each speaker affirmed that there were significant, irreconcilable differences between the major faiths. A case in point was the person of Jesus. We all agreed with the statement, if Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. And if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. The bottom line was we couldn't all be equally right about the nature of God. And what I appreciate about what he's saying in this conversation that happened is they realized we all can't be right. But at the same time, there is a tone of respect and it was charitable. And we're gonna talk more about, about that in a little bit. Um, just let me say this, just to be transparent. I understand the lure and the attractiveness of pluralism, right? Because then everyone can be right. Then every religion is, like we said earlier, just a different path that leads to the same place. But here's where I think pluralism really breaks down. In the person of Jesus, because what he said was that the best and the only true way to understand him was through the scriptures. And it's tempting for us to want to define God on, on our terms, but he's actually already defined himself on his own terms in the person of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you want to know who I am, really, if you want to know how to be saved, how to live a life of truth and love, then it's through the scriptures. And I think that's why Paul, as he's with these precious people he spent three years with on the shore of the Mediterranean, he says to them, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Paul says there are wolves coming, there are people that will try to add to or take away to this precious truth that you have. So to, to cling to it, cling to the word of God. And this is why Paul refuses the, the pluralism of his day, not because he's trying to be snobby or exclusive or anything like that, but he really believes with everything in him that the difference between accepting and rejecting Jesus is the difference between life and death. And that's why he says, the, the blood of all of you is not on my hands because I told you everything. I didn't hold back. I didn't shy away. I didn't try to please you. I told you the truth. And therefore, the, the blood of all men is not on my hands. He said, my conscience is clear. He made a lot of enemies in the process, but his conscience was clear. Now, um, what I would say to us is, it's, it's also clear that if we are gonna call ourselves the church, we have to do what Paul did, which is to cling to Jesus with everything we have, stubbornly even, desperately, as the one we need 
as the one we can't get around, as the one who is the center of everything we do. He is the way to salvation. Okay, now I wanna talk about two objections to this uh, because I, I probably sense that there are many of you or at least some of you that have some follow-up to this. And so let me just read the objections. Number one, how could God condemn those who have never heard? And number two, isn't saying Jesus is the only way unkind and oppressive to other worldviews? So let's take the first. How could God condemn those who have never heard? Let me take you to another story in Acts, chapter 16. Let's look at it. Paul is on uh, another one of his missionary journeys, and this is what happens. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So what happens here is Paul has his route, he has his plan, he's going to a certain area, and God steps in and says, actually, I want you to go over here to Macedonia. Why? Because there are those who have never heard the gospel. And literally, the the man in this vision or dream says, help us, we haven't heard. And so God steps in and he makes it happen. And I just wanna get us thinking about this. Okay, this is one example of, of one event, but I think there's a principle behind it, which is, could it be that God is up to similar things now and here, but that we can't see all of it? Is it possible that here in the West, we have certain blind spots to what God is doing? We see some of it and it's wonderful and it's beautiful, But just as God steps in here and says, no, Paul, I want you to go to Macedonia where where the gospel has never been heard, could it be that God can reach where we think he can't? It is right and it's good for us to have a heart for those who never hear. But have you stopped to consider that God loves them even more than you do, more than I do? Have you stopped to consider that as much as we care about them, God created them? and that maybe we don't have the full picture of what he's up to. In fact, uh, a modern example of this, and this resource will also be posted on the website, one of the most unreached places in the world is, is uh, Muslim regions. And there are places when, where Christian missionaries are not welcome, where Bibles are not welcome, and it's starting to be documented more and more. There's a couple books at least that I know of that have come out telling the stories of Muslims who have found Jesus and it wasn't through a missionary, it wasn't through someone putting a Bible in their hands. Do you know how they found Jesus? Through dreams and through visions. It's happening right now. And these were shocking to many of these people, confusing, threw off everything they thought about the world and how it worked. And I wish I had time to tell the specific stories. Go read the books. But the point is, God is doing it. He really is. He's reaching where we would say there is no chance that anyone could have heard. And God's heart is to save as many as he can. Look at 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. And it's not just what he wants to do. I would argue it's what he is doing and what he sent his son to do. And I just have to say one more thing before we move on. 
Once again, it is so good and right for us to have a heart for all those who have never heard and to ask good questions like, God, what are you doing about it? Let me ask us, what are we doing about it? Yes, think about the Muslim nation that is shut off from the truth of the gospel, but have you even talked to your neighbor? Have you talked to the person who sits next to you at work? There are those sitting in this room who live across the street from us that have never felt the love and the kindness of Jesus. They've only experienced the distorted caricature of him. They've never felt the loving touch. What are we doing? Something that always amazes me and uh, surprises me is when I'm at a sports game and all of a sudden I'll hear someone screaming at an athlete. Have you guys heard this before? Someone is so ticked off that the quarterback or whoever it is is not performing and so they're cussing and they're yelling things out and I often look at these people and I'm like, okay, you're like three or four beers in, right? You're eating your nachos and your popcorn. Like, you get down there on the field and let's see how you would do, right? You are tearing this person up and yet you're sitting there doing nothing. May that never be us. Okay, I don't say that to condemn anyone here or to pile on guilt, but God's primary way of getting the gospel out is us. And it's good to ask global-sized questions about what he's up to, but it is your job and it is my job. That's what Paul's doing here as he's talking to these people. It's because of him and his willingness to even go to death that they even know about who Jesus is. Okay, let's go to the second objection. People say, or people who say Jesus is the only way cram the truth down people's throats. It looks like oppression. Sadly, much of the time that can be true. And so we've been talking about the first idea of truth. Now we need to talk about tenderness. The world needs tenderness from us. And sadly, there's a, a number of Christians who feel that their only job is to tell the truth. And just by telling the truth, they've done everything they're supposed to. But they're completely tone deaf as they do so. It's not just what we say, but it's how we say it. And this is just common sense in any sort of communication. Okay, if I went to my wife and I said, hey, Emily, my job is to tell you the truth. So here's everything I don't like about what you're doing. And here's all my frustrations. And I don't have to be kind about it. You just have to accept it because I'm being truthful. How do you think that would end? <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing there, there might be a black eye or something similar to that. Um, no, tone absolutely matters. And look at Paul's tone throughout this entire speech he gives. He, he's talking about how he uh, was with them and what those three years were like. And so he says in verse 19, I served the Lord with great humility. With great humility. Humility was despised in Greco-Roman culture. It was seen as weak and sort of pathetic. But humility fills the scriptures. It's all over the place. And so Paul's saying, I didn't just preach at you. I poured out my soul for you. I didn't just give you words. I gave you myself. And here's our misunderstanding of truth. 
Standing firm in truth does not mean we suddenly have new eyes to see the world and everyone else is wrong and we're right and every day is just a confirmation of how much more right we are than everyone else. You know what truth actually does? It produces humility and what it really accomplishes is it helps us to see how wrong we are much of the time. That's the effect that truth has. And so returning to to Keller one more time, I love how he explains this, this idea that knowing the truth of Jesus should never lead us to arrogance. He says, Christians believe that all human beings are made in the image of God, capable of goodness and wisdom. Christianity not only leads its members to believe people of other faiths have goodness and wisdom to offer, but it also leads them to expect that many will live lives morally superior to their own. Most, cult, or most people in our culture believe that if there is a God, we can relate to him and go to heaven through living a good life. Christianity teaches the very opposite. In the Christian understanding, Jesus does not tell us how to live so we can merit salvation. Rather, he comes to forgive and save us through his life and death in our place. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a savior. And so here's the key. Christians then should expect to find non-believers who are much nicer, kinder, wiser, and better than they are. Why? Because Christian believers are not accepted by God because of their moral perfection, wisdom, or virtue, but because of Christ's work on their behalf. And Paul lived this out. He was a Pharisee, a highly trained one at that. We know from his writings, he was also trained in Greek philosophy and rhetoric and persuasion. He could have out-argued anyone. And yet, what do we find? We find humility. What was the, the resounding theme of his ministry? It was, I am least of the apostles because of how I used to hunt down and murder Christians. I'm not even worthy of being called an apostle. I'm a wretched man. Where did that humility come from? Where did proud, zealous Paul go? Well, he met Jesus one day walking to a a place called Damascus and he was never the same after that. So there's humility and there's also tears. Maybe you noticed that. Paul says in verse 19 again, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. And then again in verse 31, remember that for three years I never stopped warning you night and day with tears. Again, Paul poured out his soul to these people and I think one of the greatest gifts that we can give to people who do not know Jesus are our tears. One of the greatest Uh, milestones in my faith has been my increasing capacity to cry. For much of my life, my tear ducts were just non-operational. I couldn't cry. And I think like many men along with me, I had inherited this sort of stoic mindset that said, you can't show certain emotions because you're weak or it's embarrassing or whatnot. And so often growing up, the adults in my life would sort of corner me and say, Will, what are you feeling? We can't, are you, are you dealing with this or not? And I was terrified of those conversations. I didn't know what to say. In fact, uh, in high school, my mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And for three years, she fought through that. 
and eventually passed away. And through that whole time, I shed very few tears because I had trained myself so just vigilantly not to let myself get there and not let myself feel. And you know what finally broke me? And when I say broke, I mean in a good way. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. What happened was, while I was in seminary, I had this professor who opened my eyes to the four gospels in ways I had never seen. I grew up in church my entire life. I, I knew the stories, but he showed me Jesus in a way that I had never seen, and two things emerged to me. First is how powerful he was, that when you really look at his life and you realize he actually lived He really said and did these things. I was moved. But then on top of that, what I realized was his deep love for me. He still wanted me. Even though he did all of those things, I felt this strong sense of his love. And there was sin in my life that I had not dealt with in that season. There were all sorts of things happening. But as I encountered Jesus in that very real way, one of the byproducts was I started to cry. And usually it was in a time of joy. I would just hear someone talking about Jesus and the tears would come. But whatever he was doing in my life, the floodgates opened and it felt like I had been released from this emotional prison. Like I could finally feel. And the best part of all of it was that I would cry in the moments when I felt him closest. And so he was teaching me how to do this. And I think it's something that God uses in our lives. Like Paul, when you talk with people, it may not be literal tears, but when they see that your soul is being poured out before them in love and tenderness, it's moving to them. Quick story and we'll move on. Uh, A number of years ago, I was a student ministry pastor and we were having our, our summer camp. And so we pulled the, the worst mistake in the book, which is the night before we left for this summer retreat, we had an all-nighter at the church. And so none of our students had any sleep. Maybe a couple of them, I don't know. They were exhausted. So then we pile in vans and we drive to the camp and I was speaking the first night and most of these students did not know Jesus. So I had prepared this message for them and I thought what I had was the, the perfect introduction to my talk. I was gonna tell them an awkward first date story, which for students is like a secret weapon, right? I just knew they would be on the edge of their seats. They'd be right there with me. And so I start my message and I kid you not, in about three minutes, I'm in the middle of this story about this awkward date right, the the most exciting part of my message, and I start to see heads nodding off. (laughs) And I realize one by one, I'm losing them. And I'm trying to up my energy, but inside, I'm just feeling helpless, I'm feeling desperate. And I'm like, no, you need to hear this. I, I want you to hear this. And you're asleep, and not even my best story can hold you. And in that moment, I felt something welling up inside of me. And before I knew it, it super embarrassing at the time, I just start crying. And I will say this when I started crying, every head came up. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. 
I never looked once more at my outline. I scrapped everything I had prepared and I just started to talk with them about who Jesus is through tears. And I said, this is why he's incredible. This is what he's done for me and this is why I want you so bad to know him because I love you guys. And I think that's why Paul can stand with this group of Christians on a shore weeping with each other, saying goodbye because Paul poured out his life for them. And the world will say to us, um, you don't have to hold to the truth because it's, it's arrogant and it's exclusive. Well, Jesus would disagree. And I think what he would say to us is, maybe it's gonna require tears. Maybe um, I'm going to have to, you're gonna have to lean on me and trust me that if I am the only way, then I'm gonna give you what you need to help people to see that. Paul was an expert at this. Look at Colossians 4. He said, next slide if you would. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should, in other words, the gospel. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. See, in one hand, we, we cling to truth and who Jesus is, and in the other, we, we are tender, we are full of grace. Let's look at the last one, truth, tenderness, now togetherness. In verse 36, when he had said this, Paul knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Paul knew there's something about being the church that means being together, togetherness. And it's surprising because in verse 16 of chapter 20, what it tells us is that Paul was in a hurry. He had to get to Jerusalem. He couldn't delay. It was a dangerous journey. He was on his way and that's where he had his sights set. And yet, despite his being in a hurry, verse 17 says he stops in Miletus and he sends for the Ephesian elders, okay? Miletus and Ephesus are about 30 miles apart, but it's not a direct route. It was sort of this zigzaggy journey. And scholars all agree that to, to send someone to get them and to bring them back would have taken about three or four days. So why is Paul in a hurry stopping, delaying, putting things on hold so that these people can come meet him? And the answer is that love is not efficient. It's present. Love is not efficient, it's present. And this is so hard for us sometimes because we'd rather send an email or a text or make a quick phone call. Sometimes all the time we give to responding to another human being is we'll highlight a text message and click the little thumbs up icon. And that's all we give it. But Paul stops his trip and why do we gather here every week, Vox? It's because at the, the center of what the church is, is togetherness. And Paul's like, yeah, I, I do I need to get to Jerusalem. But what's most important right here and right now is that I wait and that I see these people I love face to face. And it's really uh, no coincidence 
that those who end up wandering from the truth and those who lose their tenderness towards Jesus are often the ones who are the most isolated. The ones who have chosen to live alone by themselves. That's why Paul sent for these Ephesians because at the heart of the church is togetherness and at the heart of the gospel is togetherness. God invented communication, by the way. There's a million ways he could have expressed his love to us. He could have written it in the sky. Every day as the sun rises, he could have audibly proclaimed it over all of creation. But this is the gospel. God showed up in person, face to face, The amazing story of Jesus is that our God left the glories of heaven to dwell in the dust of earth. Our God is a God of togetherness. And that's what separates Christianity from every other religion, faith, or philosophy of the world. And yes, it's offensive, but it's also beautiful. In a God who would meet us on our level, in our space, in our shoes, is a God worth giving everything to? Is a God worth bowing down before? Is a a savior worth lifting up above all other, other faiths, all other gods? And why would we not want the world to see him? Why would we not offer them that hope? So who are we, Vox, as the church? We are those who hold to truth, the gospel of who Jesus is as a lifeline that we will never let go of. We speak with the tenderness of those who have not earned any of what we've been given, but who truly have received grace. And lastly, we refuse to be efficient, but we choose to be present and to do life face to face. That's who we are. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot of questions surrounding how people are saved, Lord, what truth is, where hope can be found. Lord, there's probably a lot of questions in this room on all of those things, Lord, but it all has to start and end with you and who you claim to be. God, for the incredible hand of grace with which you reach down and touch us. God, you, you reach down in places where we assume it's impossible. Lord, but your heartbeat through the scriptures is undeniable. Lord, we don't always know how you do it, but we know that you desire all to be saved, and Lord, that you are acting to do so. Lord, help those of us who need to take the next step of faith to trust that you will and are doing what you have promised to do, that your heart really is your heart, that when our answers and explanations fail us, where we're not called to know it all, we're just called to sit with you and to remind ourselves of the sweetness of who you are and your presence and your power. Lord, give us boldness as your church 
to live lives of truth and tenderness and togetherness. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your name, amen. We're gonna go right into the table, speaking of togetherness, and what better way to process these things, celebrate them, dwell on them, absorb them, than to remember Jesus' suffering for all of us. This was the pinnacle of his togetherness. This is why he came, to offer life through his death, through his resurrection. So come as you are and come resting in his grace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming today. Hope you have a wonderful week. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.